Hey guys, I'm Jess. And I'm Cece. Welcome to Myth and Macabre, where we dive into the world of paranormal, supernatural, and everything creepy in between. In today's episode, join us while we take a look into New England vampirism, specifically that in Rhode Island. Enjoy! Tuberculosis was running rampant through New England in the 18th and 19th centuries. People were unaware of what it was or how it was spread, but saw that entire families were being killed off. At the time, they referred to this illness as consumption. Symptoms included persistent coughing, sometimes with blood, sunken eye sockets, fevers, and weight loss, almost as if the disease was consuming the infected individual. Somehow, New Englanders came to believe that this was vampires causing the symptoms and the deaths and not actually a disease. Bodies of their dead family members were supposedly feeding on the living, causing them to be consumed and eventually die. It seems that Rhode Island was the center of this vampire attack, as the majority of documented cases happened within the borders of our small estate. The time period was before embalming became a standard practice, so if a suspected vampire was exhumed and there was still blood in the body, that person was deemed to be undead. In an effort to prevent the remaining family members from falling victim to the undead, the blood-filled heart was to be removed and burned to ash before reburying the body. Which leads you to wonder, like, what they thought was going to happen with the blood if they didn't take it out of the body. Well, we didn't take it out. Something's supposed to happen to it after you die. But if it's still there, obviously you're a vampire. For some reason, I feel like they have dug up enough bodies, which... Again, don't know why they would be digging up that many bodies. It is my favorite but, 1700s pastime. Um, I think that they saw with decomposition eventually. Oh, I guess if it like dries up, yeah, it doesn't it, seem like, like blood if it's like dried and coagulates and okay, does gross things. Super I'm gross. Not a scientist. Um, okay, so this is a uh, interesting. I'm interested to see where this goes. It it goes. It goes places. <laughs> uh, so we're gonna start in with a, a timeline of the vampire panic of we're just going to go with Rhode Island, even though it was kind of all through New England. um, Rhode Island kind of seemed to be the epicenter of the New England vampire panic. Which is weird, Rhode Island being the epicenter of, like, anything. anything. (laughs) Basically. Um, So, yeah, so we're going to start in 1796 um, with Abigail Staples. There's not too much that's known about her past, um, so we're going to start her story with her death. So she died in 1796 in Cumberland from consumption. Not long after her passing, her sister Lavinia Chase started showing symptoms of consumption. During the time she was ill, she told her husband that she was having dreams where a shadow figure was sitting on her chest and drawing out her breath. And during a few of these dreams, she supposedly called out Abigail's name. Her husband, Stephen Chase, this is gonna get confusing. There's multiple Stevens. So her husband is Stephen Chase. He was concerned and went to his father-in-law, Stephen Staples, for guidance. So the two men, in a desperate attempt to cure Lavinia, requested permission to exhume Abigail's body with hopes of trying an experiment, is really all they say about it. Um, So the council had agreed under the conditions that they reinter Abigail's body respectfully and they don't make the ordeal a spectacle. Could you imagine this nowadays, by the way? No. Well, we want to just dig up this body. Why? For an experiment. Like, yeah, sure. Go on. <laughs> like, don't worry about what that experiment is. We just, for an experiment. Yeah. No, that, no, I can't imagine that. 
Although I would probably be on board with it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, anyway, so the husband and the father, the Stevens, they agree. And under the cover of darkness, they venture out to the family plot to conduct their experiment. Uh, like I said, there's not really much that seems to be known about the experiment they were planning or the condition of Abigail's body upon exhumation. She had been buried about a year at this point. So I'm assuming that it wasn't something you know that you would want to see now this doesn't sound like they were accompanied by like a medical professional of any kind either I didn't say anything about them so if they're it. about to declare this person a vampire they're just like hey from my untrained eye i think this should be worse right yes, okay exactly from everything that i read it sounded like it was just the two of them going out there together but they did have some stories not them specifically but you know legend Stories claim that Stephen Chase, so Lavinia's husband, ran from the graveyard in a panic, and Stephen Staples, her father, never talked about what they saw in the cemetery. So we have no idea what they saw. We just have no idea. I'm going to be honest, though. If you and I decided that we were going to go dig up a grave and we dug it up, it doesn't really matter whether it was decomposed or not. If there were, like, too many bugs on it or something, I'm running away in a panic anyway. That's fair. I, I do not like bugs. But this was also, like the 1700s and bugs were everywhere so i don't think it was bugs maybe it wasn't bugs but maybe it was like i don't know her eyeball like exploded and her skin was peeling away i don't know i would be running away in a panic too that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with her like right but yeah so we have no idea what the state of her body was what it was that totally unscientific experimentation exactly i don't think they even got to the experiment i think it Whatever it was scared them that much that they just ran out without even completing their mission. Okay, completely. So wait, did they get her back in the ground? I would assume so. They didn't really say anything. Um, They also don't have any information on Lavinia's fate because there's no more records of her life or death. So wait, how did you find this information? Um, I read some books. Because books are good. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Well, so I'm just like, were there like news articles that they had made this appeal? Or was there like a court record where somebody, you know, they went to to say, hey, can we exhume this body? Like there were quotes from, I believe it was a news article or some kind of like documentation from the time where they went to, there was like a specific council that they had to ask for permission to exhume the okay. body. Um, so there was information from that. And then the rest of it kind of just went So into, these guys were like, we gave them permission to do it. And then they never talked about it again. Basically. All right. Yeah. You know, sounds plausible to me. I mean, I could see myself doing that. Kind of. Kind of. Maybe not really. But, not but so much. you just be like, this is the worst mistake ever. We're not talking about it anymore. No, we're just, we're not going to do that. So yeah, they don't really know anything other than that. So statistically speaking, Lavinia probably died from tuberculosis. Statistically speaking, yes. Okay. That's again, not a fact. But not a fact. No record. And I read multiple books and I checked multiple websites and like multiple and like nobody knew what happened to Lavinia. They were like, we're going to try and save Lavinia. It didn't work. Don't talk about it anymore. And I don't know what this experiment was, but I don't think they got far enough to even try it. All right. So now we're going to move on to 1799. So a few years later. Okay. And we have Sarah Tillinghast in Exeter, Rhode Island. She was one of 14 children to her parents, Stuckley and Honor, whose names I love. I like Honor. That's a cool name. It is. Um, Stuckley, I think, went by Snuffy. Is this the dad or the mom? The the dad. Stuckley is the dad. Honor is the mom. Uh, I believe he went by Snuffy. 
if I remember from what I read. I didn't write it down. All right. Um, so in the late fall of 1799, Sarah was 19 years old, and she was spending a lot of time in her room. It didn't really raise suspicion at the time because she was mostly a quiet girl kept to herself when she wasn't doing housekeeping and farming duties. Family eventually realized that she was very ill. She ended up dying of consumption not long after they kind of had the feeling that something was really wrong. So soon after her death, some of her siblings began talking about her visiting them at night, like in their dreams or in their rooms. Which is creepy. Creepy. I'm trying to like wrap my head around it. I'm like, okay, it's the 1700s. We don't know a lot about psychology and medical science, but they also like didn't have the internet or like movies. So we're thinking this is probably just somebody trying to like deal with the grief of having lost a sibling mostly, right? Yeah, because I mean, back then, I'm assuming families were a lot closer than, I mean, they I would hope so, but I mean, who's to say? Right. So her siblings are starting to tell their mom. They're telling Honor that Sarah came to them. She hugged them. She talked to them. She touched their chest, right above their hearts. Her siblings, James, Andres, Ruth, Mary, and Hannah, would all pass away over the next 18 months. Which is weird, because those recollection of that dream like almost sounds sweet, right? Like It does. I'm here. I love you. This is, let me touch your heart. And now you're but- dead. But consumption or tuberculosis is like a coughing disease, so touching your heart means also touching your lungs. And mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I so, see where this is going. Yes. So those, what was that, five, one, two, three, yeah. So those five siblings followed her over the next year and a half. Her sibling, Ezra, was the next one to fall ill. And a family friend, Jeremiah Dandridge, told Stuckley, the father, a story about how the dead can return and feed on the living. So there was hope. If he attended to the dead family members, Stuckley and two farmhands that he had, Caleb and Ben, they decided to go out to the family plot and dig up all of the dead children. So that they couldn't, like, come back to the living people. Right. So they were inspecting them for signs of vampirism. They didn't call it vampirism back then, but... Signs of, like, eating the living, Right, signs of being undead and eating their living family members' souls. Okay. Um, So Stuckley, Caleb, and Ben, they all go out, dig up the six graves. All of the children kind of looked in the state of decomposition that they should have been, except for Sarah. When they opened her casket, she had no signs of decay. And she was, like, the first one She was the first one. So this had been probably about two years at this point that they're digging them up now. Ben ran from the scene. He just ran. As would I. Same. Uh, Stuckley ordered Caleb to go retrieve the oil can while he cut out his daughter's heart. This is like weirdly traumatizing and it sounds like it was like not quite commonplace for them, but they were just like, this is the thing we have to do. This is how we fix this. So there was still blood pooled in her organs Caleb came back with the oil and Stuckley doused Sarah's heart in the oil and set it on fire. So unfortunately, his remedy didn't cure Ezra as he soon followed his six additional siblings into the ground. Ew. Yep. I mean, that's very unfortunate for Ezra. I'm still trying to, like, figure out on what planet you're just totally cool with, like, I'm going to dig up this body and burn some of it, like, in my backyard kind of I guess they probably had much bigger yards than we have now yeah they ran a farm so, and also your child yeah there's like a lot 
a lot to unpack there, Stugly. Yeah, that's... I feel really bad for the mom. That must be, like, really traumatized. Like, not only to, like, lose all of your children, but also to have your husband be like, we're going to dig this one up and this one's no good. So we're burning it. Right. Well, we're digging them all up and then this one specific one is no good. So That's we true. Will yeah, you're right. cut out her organs and burn them. Ew. No. no. I'm glad we've moved past that being the solution to things. Kind of. I was going to say, are we sure about that? <laughs> I feel like we're on our way back there. Inconclusive currently. <laughs> and we move on to 1827, so it's been quite a few years. Yeah, we're taking a little bit of, it's almost 30 years, right? Yeah, because it was okay. 1799. So Captain Levi Young decided that in the early 19th century, he wanted to retire early from his career in the military. He and his wife, Anna, purchased a farm in Foster, Rhode Island, and moved with their growing family from Sterling, Connecticut. So they were originally from Connecticut. They moved to Rhode Island. And now how close is Foster to Exeter? They're kind of sort of at different ends of the state. Okay. So, um, I mean, Rhode both, Island's tiny, so they're not right. far from each other anyway. But right. But they're, they're not like neighboring cities. They're not neighboring cities, but they're both kind of sort of close to Connecticut. Okay. But on different ends. You've got like a north and south situation? Yeah. Okay. So the farm provided basically what they needed to survive and proved to be a successful business for the family. Their oldest daughter, Nancy, was interested in the family business and assisted with the success. She assisted her father and her brothers by taking on the responsibility of accounting and bookkeeping work. Early in 1827, she came down with a cold that eventually rendered her bedridden. Ugh. Not fun. No, that sounds miserable. ever want to be bedridden. On April 6, 1827, 19-year-old Nancy succumbed to her case of consumption, which is what her cold had eventually turned into. A few months later, her sister, Elmira, came down with the same kind of colds, but they were beginning to suspect that it was the same consumption that overtook Nancy. So Elmira begins telling her father, Levi, that Nancy is visiting her in her dreams. This is apparently a recurrent thing. I was going to say, I also think this is really interesting that, like, tuberculosis is still such a big thing over the course of at least, like, almost 40 years just from what we're talking about. And I'm assuming it was a thing before that as well. It was. And then it goes even a little past. Yeah. That's so not only is it like nuts that this goes on for so long, but I think it's also kind of interesting this, like, recurring potentially dealing with grief of, like, I'm seeing my loved ones in my dreams. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a cool thread to be tying between all of them, even though there's a bit of a time gap. There, yeah, there's a time gap and like a like a spatial gap. Not yeah. a huge spatial gap, but they're not like in the same kind of. It's not like space. they all are in the same community, and right. like it's just kind of like a hearsay thing throughout the community. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So she started telling everyone that Nancy looked like an angel, and told her that her pain would be gone soon, and not to be sad. So Levi, Which, once again, sounds like kind of loving and sweet if they weren't, like, turning around and then dying of right. the same thing afterward. Right, exactly. It's like a sweet, sad, sad sweet. <laughs> um, so Levi ends up calling for a meeting with the town elders. They determined that his home was being tormented by a demon that was lingering in Nancy's body. So, here we so go Angel Nancy, who's coming back, is not actually an angel. She's a demon that 
looks like Nancy. I think that they're going for like the vampirism route where it's like the body is being possessed okay. by a demon, but I don't know if they're thinking that like Angel Nancy in the dreams is the demon. But I think that things are happening. They think that things are happening because her body, her physical body in the ground okay. is demonized. I would be super interested to see at where, like, what point in religious history, and obviously this would be more research and, like, a mm-hmm. different episode anyway, but I'd be interested to kind of know where in the timeline of, like, religion this occurred. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, angels and demons have been a thing, like, forever. forever but, like, to have that be kind of the first place you leap to, I think, is an interesting headspace to explore. It is. So Levi and some of the community members decide to venture out to the single grave marker on the family's new burial plot because she was the first one to die since they moved from Connecticut. Um, So she's literally the only one there in the graveyard. They start digging, and once they find the casket, they they laid it on some old farm wood. I'm not really sure why. That's just what they did. And it seems relevant because Levi then took a torch and set his daughter's body on fire. Did they, like, take her out? Or were they they just like, everything about this is probably bad. Don't open it. We're just Mm -hmm. lighting it on fire. I think what they did was they took the casket out, put it on the farm wood, and then just set the whole thing on fire. All right. Um, Is how it sounded. I'm going to be honest. That feels less creepy than the last guy, who's like, let me cut out your heart and light that on fire. Right. Much Still creepy, but less Still creepy, creepy, but less creepy. Um, So the local doctor had advised the young family to surround her burning corpse and inhale the vapors. That sounds like a terrible idea. That sounds like literally (laughs) the worst idea that you could ever Like, oh, this person, I mean, I guess they didn't really acknowledge that they died of like a disease, but like, and they probably didn't have the science to realize how terrible of an idea that is. But like, let's just, yeah, oh my gosh, that's such a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. The theory behind this was that it would supposedly cleanse them of any demonic contamination. Which is kind of interesting because I feel like that kind of pulls from like the idea of like smudging and like kind of cleansing with smoke. Okay. Which I I can see. Like like the connection to me makes sense there. But like here's this thing that might be possessed by a demon. Let's breathe in its smoke. Doesn't feel overly cleansing. And from a modern viewpoint... Well, that's just a terrible idea. It, it needs some sage. But I can see, like, the connection. We should have thrown the, some the sage on the pile. Cleaning, you know what I mean? Like, right. oh, we're going to clean this through the smoke. But yeah. Okay. I didn't even think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still a horrible idea. But No, it is. Definitely needs some sage. Yeah, a lot of sage, I think. <laughs> um, unfortunately, burning Nancy to a crisp post-mortem was not the cure that the young family hoped it would be. Elmira died within a year of her sister's exhumation and burning, and then four additional young children would go on to contract and succumb to consumption over the following years. Which, I mean, from a modern science viewpoint, I guess kind of makes sense. It's a disease that, like, commonly went around households and... Yes. was probably around in the community, and... I mean, it sounds like maybe they got away scot-free with breathing in post-mortem smoke... (laughs) I don't even know what you would call that other than really gross. But, I mean, it seems like they kind of survived that, right? You said the the next one to die died within the year. But, like, yeah, it was, it's not like they died, like, a couple weeks later. Right. So, I mean, they at least survived a little while. The four additional children that weren't sick at the time of the burning, not sure if that helped or hurt them. Yeah, but We're realistically, like, they could have contracted it, like, way later. and Yeah. 
So it may or may not have anything to do with it. Either way, probably did not help to give any longevity to their lives. No. No, no. So that was the story of them, the Youngs. We're going to move on to 1850, sort of. But we're going to start this story in 1990. Okay, so we're doing like a little little retroactive. Okay, we're going to do a little back and forth here. So in 1990, there were some kids playing on an old farm in Griswold, Connecticut. I picked this one. I know it doesn't fall in the Rhode Island category, but it's interesting. Stick with me, I promise. Uh, (laughs) And for the record, Griswold's actually not that far from Rhode Island anyway. It's very close. I had a friend that lived there, and it's like 15 minutes from the Rhode Island line. so. So it's not that far. So some kids, 1990, they're playing on the old Griswold farm or the old farm in Griswold, Connecticut, and they discover a skull. So I'm assuming they're terrified, and they run to their parents, and they say, hey, look, we found this skull. What do you I do? You say that, but let's be honest. If no, we had totally found a skull when we were a kid, our first thought would not have been, oh, my God, this belongs to a dead body. This is disgusting and terrifying. We would be like, huh, a skull. You think it's real? We would have <laughs> Hamlet. It would have been Hamlet. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> we were weird kids. We were strange kids. So anyway... Parents find out somehow and call the cops. They go in, they investigate the area. They find it to be an abandoned 18th to 19th century cemetery with 29 bodies. Um, so they deem it an archaeological site and not a criminal site. So they, the state police or the city police turn it over to the state archaeologist at the time, whose name was Nick Bellantoni. They found one complete skeleton of a male in his 50s. It was dating back to about 1850, and it was found with minimal grave markings. There was a JB-55, which they presumed were his initials and age at his time of death. Okay, kind of cryptic, but I guess I could see it being just like a little quick thing for, like a a headstone kind of thing. I mean, he was in there with 29 people. Well, yeah, and if it's just like a kind of quickly thrown together thing, I guess it makes sense. Like, here's his initials, here's how old he was. That's who's here. Like a mass grave kind of thing, where they wanted to be somewhat respectful. So they find it, it's marked, they presume it's like his his initials and date at the time of death. It was written in like the little coffin that he was found in. It wasn't like a super nice coffin, it was just kind of like a little thing. Um, They determined that his bones showed signs of the tuberculosis infection. Um, That's kind of cool that you can determine it through people's bones. It is, and I was curious about that. So apparently they can find that through lesions on the bones that are consistent with those found in others affected with the disease. Interesting. I did not realize that tuberculosis left lesions on your bones, but... That creeps me out. Yeah. I mean, I would have assumed, like, because of, like, the nature of all the coughing with tuberculosis, I could have seen, like, lesions on, like, your lungs, but your lungs are soft tissue. So, obviously, like, they would be hundreds of years later, right. you're not going to be able to see them. That's kind of really cool. Mm-hmm. So, he had also found to have been exhumed and reburied at one time. When they reburied his body, they had removed his head and turned it face down, and they set his femur bones across his chest in, like, a cross mark. So, it was kind of like a skull and crossbones with the skull facing down. Creepy. Um, and there was evidence that his heart had been removed. So, Well, I mean, I guess if he was anything like the, the right. other people, like removing their heart seems to be a thing that they do when they exhume gravestones of things they think are yeah no good. But, like, how creepy? Could that you imagine, like, 
But like, what did they do with his heart? We don't know. There's no history. No. Well, they probably burned it. I I mean, mean, not a fact, but probably (laughs) burned it. I know. It's just so weird that like they can tell that it was cut out, but then they have no additional information. Well, I wonder if there's like broken ribs around it or something like that. Yeah. Or like knife marks on something. Anyway, that would be cool. It would be. I mean, the whole thing would not be cool, but. To be able to research it after it happened hundreds of years ago is probably kind of cool. Yeah, because then at that point you're kind of like separated from it. It's not like Yeah, and it's kind of like solving a mystery. Like, what happened to this person? Yeah. I like it. I like it. Kind of. So I did some more research into that because I was like, well, if they removed his heart, why did they also then have to rearrange his bones? Rearranging the skeleton was thought to be an alternative to burning the heart if there was no blood remaining in the body or as an additional measure to keep the dead in the ground. So they removed his heart. I'm assuming they moved his organs or not his organs his bones around as a precautionary measure to you know have a backup just in case the heart burning didn't work because that had been going so well this makes me wonder how many bodies there are under the ground that have their femurs crossed across their chest yeah no especially under the ground here this is like some horror movie stuff it is i'm like the dead are rising (laughs) they're not they're not but (laughs) But I feel like they're going to. That Yeah, I mean, but then they wouldn't be able to walk because their femurs aren't attached. So we'd be safe. It's fine. We're fine. We're all fine. So in 2019, after almost 30 years of investigating, through DNA analysis, archaeologists and the archaeologists specifically from earlier, Nick Bellantoni, were able to get together with historical investigators and DNA analysis, and they were able to determine that JB55 is a man named John Barber who died at the age of 55. All right, so accurate accurate. marking on the grave. Yes. Cryptic, but accurate. Right about that. Um, They are still searching for his descendants, so, you know, ancestry, 23andMe. That would be kind of cool. That would. I would love to be able to tell people I'm related to JB. Be like, my ancestor has his femurs crossed across his chest because he was deemed to be, like, a real big problem. Yep. So now we're going to move on to the Brown family of Exeter. And this is going to be a little larger of a section. Okay, and now we're talking arguably the most famous of these kind of tuberculosis vampire cases. Yes. Um, so specifically, Mercy Brown is most widely known and the most thoroughly documented case of early vampirism. She's also known as the last vampire or the last New England vampire because she was either the last one or one of the very last ones before we stopped doing this. <laughs> Which so we'll and get we to. stopped doing this because of like medical science progressing. We'll get there. All right. Okay. It's at the end. I Sounds got good. All right. <laughs> um, so we're going to start with uh, the family. So there were Mary Eliza and George Brown. Mary Eliza is one person. She goes by her first and middle name. Um, and they had six children. They had five daughters and one son. I don't have the names of all of them because there wasn't too much information. It was really just about three of the children, the three children that contracted it and, and died. So the first family member to get sick was Mary Eliza and their oldest daughter, who was 20 at the time. Her name was Mary Olive. So we have Mary and Mary 
Which kind of makes sense. Very religious family, I'm assuming. I didn't get into their religion, but, I mean, it makes sense for the time. During that time, yeah. Yeah. I I can see it. Okay. So, Mary Eliza, the mother, she died on December 8th of 1883. And then Mary Olive followed about six months later on June 6th of 1884. The rest of the family goes on and is living their life. Uh, Five years later, Edwin, so their only son, he gets ill. And in an effort to regain his health, he and his wife head off to Colorado Springs, Colorado. So all the way across the country. Because it supposedly has healing powers of rarefied air and mineral waters. Which, from what I understand, was like kind of a common thing around that time. Like, get them to the fresh air and the, the high altitude. and Right. It's kind of around the same time where we were like sending sick women to the sea. Not into the sea, Not into but the like sea, to, but onto to the, the salt air. Yes, over <laughs> kind to of, the saltiness. Um, kind of yellow wallpapery. Um, but yeah, so that was a, a pretty common thing for the time. So it seemed to be helping his system, his symptoms, um, or if not necessarily helping them, at the very least, they weren't getting worse. So while he's away, he learns that his youngest sister, Mercy, who the family called Lena, was also ill, and then she passed away from consumption on January 17th, 1892. So Edwin and his wife hear this. They return to Rhode Island, but when they return, Edwin's health starts declining again so i guess the fresh air did something didn't cure it but he came home and started getting worse all right so in march 1892 the townspeople started believing that mary eliza mary olive or mercy lena were undead and they were causing edwin's illness to progress so the townspeople which is can we just talk about how that's a little like weird and sexist i mean i gr- granted bit. edwin is the only male in this family <laughs> but like obviously the women are making him sick obviously well you know what all of these stories the the woman is at the center of it like i mean one that's of the, kind of traditional though right is. isn't that the witch hunts too it was all the women it's always the women we're much more easily possessed by demons, obviously. Obviously, because we're crazy. Uh, but that's, again, another episode. <laughs> it's not a, not a story for today. Psychiatric health with women is a completely different episode. <laughs> so the townspeople are, like, calling for something to happen. They're asking George to, you know, exhume the three family members. He... The townspeople? The townspeople. Okay, so now this is... We've, we've left the family and we're, we like, left going the public. Okay. Yes. So... He doesn't really want to do it, but he reluctantly agrees. He's willing to try anything to save his son and also, you know, keep the townspeople from having their own witch hunt on him. Like storming his house down or something. (laughs) Right. Also not a fact. So Mary Eliza and Mary Olive had been buried for eight to nine years at this point. Um, Mercy had died in the winter. So she died in January. This is March now. So it's only been a couple months. Um, So she was being stored in the cemetery crypt because the ground wasn't thawed enough for them to dig a grave and they don't have like backhoes and excavators like they do now. So for anyone who's not from the New England area, our winters get very cold, our ground gets very frozen, probably even more so back then. I think our winters have gotten milder over time. Global warming. Um, <laughs> yes, but yeah, they didn't have like modern day machinery. So it makes sense that at that point, if they couldn't dig into the ground, that they would throw someone in a crypt until spring came and they could right, get yeah. them in the ground. It was common. So they were keeping her in the crypt until spring came so that they could, you know, dig her a proper grave and put her in the ground. This one did have a 
medical examiner, Dr. Harold Metcalf. Making strides. Making strides. We have a doctor here. He was there to oversee the exhumation. He was not on board with this. He had objected to it. But since George agreed to it and he was the family member, it proceeded. The medical examiner was there just because I guess at this point now we have medical examiners when we exhume bodies because that makes sense. It makes way more sense. I think it it goes to show that like a lot of progress has been made between the older cases that we've heard about and kind of the modern ones. Right. Which is kind of an interesting contrast where that was like the family was like, oh, we got to do this. And now it's like the community is like, oh, no, we got to do this. Even though the science is like, no, "Eh, we shouldn't do this. This isn't really that great of an idea. (laughs) Yeah. So family's graves are dug up. Mary Eliza and Mary Mary Olive's caskets are opened, and the only thing they see inside are, like, bones and some remaining hair and muscle tissue remnants, Um, so everything looks as expected. So then they move on to the crypt, and they open Mercy's casket, and her appearance is shocking to the townspeople. Not sure why it's shocking to them, but we'll get there. So was it also shocking to the medical examiner or just to the townspeople? Just to the townspeople. Oh, just to the uh, uneducated, not knowing what they're supposed to expect. Okay. Exactly. Um, I'm enjoying this mob mentality. (laughs) I'm not. Mob mentality is terrifying. Oh, it totally is. But it's kind of interesting to watch in retrospect. It is. I wouldn't want to be a part of it. But watching it in hindsight, it's fun. Uh, So the townspeople see that her flesh is still intact there's still blood in her veins because again embalming wasn't a thing i mean it was a thing but it wasn't a great thing so there's still blood and the townspeople see this as a lack of decomposition compared to mary olive and mary eliza because they had seen her severely decomposed and mercy was not severely decomposed which like from a retrospective point of view with what we know about science and decomposition and all this stuff. Makes complete sense. Obviously, yeah. Like, the bodies that have been in the ground with the worms longer are going to be more right. decomposed than the one that's been frozen for six months. Exactly. Actually, it was, it was two months. It was frozen two months, two yeah. Months. So it wasn't even six <laughs> it months. It wasn't even six months. So the townspeople have now decided that Mercy is the undead relative causing her brother's illness to progress now that he's returned home. Obviously. Um, obviously. So following the beliefs of the time period, her heart and liver were removed. So they did both her heart and her liver. Some sources said just her heart, but most sources said her heart and liver. They were burned to ash over a bonfire. Ew. And then, nope. It gets ewer. Ewier. <laughs> Is that a word? So once the ash was collected, they mixed it into an elixir. I saw different things in different places. So like it ranged from like water to wine and like some other things. So we're just going to say an elixir for Edwin to drink. Ew. Ew. That is even ewier. That is ewier. That's almost worse than the breathing in the smoke, I think. Like, now you're, like, ingesting. I mean, I guess it's ash. Ash is maybe kind of sterile. I don't really know enough about ash. No. I'm grossed out by the whole thing. The whole thing grosses me out. Yeah. Ew. This did not work, and Edwin Brown died two months later. I mean, surprise, surprise that it didn't work. I wonder if drinking ash would kill you, though. I don't think or would that it work it was like the, activated charcoal? I don't. I don't think it was the act of drinking the ash that. I think it was just that he was ill for his illness years progressed. At this point yeah, and it okay. Just got worse and, I mean, still super ill. Still super ill. But I want to go back to Doctor Metcalf for a second. So this is the only case that we had a doctor present, even though he was against the idea to begin with. So why did he just stand around and let the townspeople do this when he was against? 
desecrating this disease. Other than person. just being outnumbered? Like other than being outnumbered. Okay, there's a reason. So, I mean I'm interested. He actually did try. He tried to reason with the townspeople. When they saw that Mercy was, you know, not as they had expected, he explained what his knowledge of decomposition was and reminded them that she'd only been dead for two months, whereas the others were like years, almost a decade. He went on to explain that cold weather was a factor and it delayed decomposition. This is kind of refreshing. This like, is very refreshing. Like you have this mob that you're probably not going to be able to change their mind, but to have somebody being like, this is not as weird as you all think it is. Right. It's kind of refreshing. Like the first things I read didn't really say too much about him. It was kind of just like he was there and I'm like, well, if he was there and he didn't agree with it, like why in the world would he not try just to stop like it? Just like stand by and let it happen. Yeah. <laughs> but, so I was really glad to find some sources that actually discussed it and talked about how he did try to stop them and explain to them that decomposition was a thing. There's old Providence Journal articles that make it very clear that he was a man of science and had no patience for claims of vampires. He was not about it. Every he was like a scientific person. If, My kind of person. Exactly. If you can't <laughs> if you can't Explain it with science, it's not real. But because it's 1892 and the community still views medical science as a pseudoscience because it's not something, like this is shortly after like barbers were the same thing as surgeons. Is all yeah, so we haven't made like huge medical strides yet. So I can right. see why people are like, mm, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> right. So obviously the community is looking at this and saying, well, medical science, pseudoscience, you also cut hair. Not really sure if he actually cut hair, but that was a thing. Anyway, so they obviously think that he's the crazy one, and the only logical explanation to the townspeople was vampirism. It just, it's so weird to know that this is, like, historically what happened, because it feels, like, just straight out of a horror movie, which, I mean, I guess they got ideas from history. But, like, no, no, no. We don't know about that medical stuff. It's definitely a vampire. It's obviously a vampire because decomposition. What? What is that? Say what you will, Mr. Who Went to School, but this is a vampire. We've seen this before. Right? We've seen this for decades now. Centuries. So then there's no additional information known about the other three daughters. I honestly really couldn't even find their names. I didn't search super hard, but in all of the sources that I was looking at, it didn't give their names. They're not really significant right. to the story of Mercy Brown. So fair. I guess let's, yeah, let them continue to have their anonymity. Yes. However, I was able to find that George, the father of the family, he lived to the ripe old age of 80 and died in 1922. They didn't list a cause of death. I'm assuming it was old age or maybe he's a vampire because like that's old for the 1800s. Yeah. Well, also that like raises a lot of questions about like immunity to tuberculosis. Like I lived in a house with most of my family, lost most of them, but <laughs> I live to 80. I'm going to become an octogenarian. Um, <laughs> yes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, my vote's for him being the vampire. Um, I'm on board with that. I'm pretty sure he fed on all of his children. Also, not a fact. <laughs> not a fact. Uh, so at the end of the 19th century, the vampire panic began to wind down. Around this time, Robert Koch had conclusively found that tuberculosis, then known as consumption, which is the disease we've been talking about, was in fact caused by a bacteria that spread within close quarters and not by vampire corpses. Which apparently now we believe medical science. What if George just worked too much? 
what if he was just a workaholic dad, so he wasn't home with his wife and his kids, <laughs> and just managed to not catch it? We're still talking about George. I am. I'm, I'm a little hung up on George. I don't know why he got to live to be I, so I, old. I'm not sure. But, I mean, good for him. Yeah, I mean. Go, George. So, but, yeah. So, Robert Koch, thank you, Mr. Koch, for finally making people see that tuberculosis is a bacteria and not a vampire. Because I think if we were still digging up dead bodies and burning hearts, I, mm, yeah. Well, it's also kind of weird to think, like, George lived into the 1900s. So, like, we're we're not that far back in history. No, we're not. he only died, what, like, 66 years before we were born? Like, that's not even a whole life. Well, that's, yeah, weird. that's what I'm saying. Like, it really wasn't, you talk about, like, a time when people believed in demons coming back and, and vampires and things like that. And we're not actually talking about a no. super long time ago. Not, I think that was two years before my grandfather was born. Yeah, that's creepy. Eek. I think it's probably like around the same time that my grandmother was born on my mm-hmm. dad's side. Yeah. Yeah. That's creepy. That is creepy. So now we're going to get to the end. I mean, that was the end. Um, that's the end of the history. <laughs> but that's the end of the history. <laughs> Growing up in Rhode Island, I know that I've heard countless reports of haunted activity at Marcy's grave, specifically at the crypt where her body was kept, you know, prior to the burial that they were waiting for. Is that still there today? It is still there today. Nice. She's the only vampire that we ever really talked about in school. It was always kind of like that story that they told. You talked about vampires in school? Uh, In like a history sense. Nice. Yeah. It was really just her. <laughs> we didn't gonna get... have it noted. I went to school in Massachusetts and we did not talk about you this. You did at not all. talk about vampires. So, you know, because of all like the legend and everything around it, her grave became a popular place for teenagers to go looking for, you know, midnight scares and spooking their friends. A lot of people report seeing a transparent Mercy wearing a white dress standing over her gravestone, which if I saw that would creep me out. <laughs> Um, yeah, that would be super creepy. Wicked creepy. They hear spooky noises coming from the surrounding woods. They hear disembodied voices, see glowing orbs, and strange lights. Is she in a family lot, or is she in like a more like a church graveyard, or like a more public type graveyard, or is this like it's, was this like her family plot? It's I think it's like a not necessarily like a specific family plot graveyard. Like there's other families and things there, but I think she's in with her family. Okay, but it's like a community grave center, not like something yeah. that was on their farm and it's just them. Right? Yeah, it's not just them. It's like an like an actual. It's I think it's a s- historical cemetery. I don't think that they're still burying people there. Makes sense. But I would have to look a little further into that. Sorry, I'm asking questions you no. weren't prepared for. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Research. So. Many people that go to pray at her grave report smelling roses, like a powerful scent of roses as they finish praying for her. Really? Um, her gravestone has actually been ta- chained down to prevent theft. I never knew she was like this popular. Yeah. Yep, she is. And then the crypt that she was kept in, it was entered and vandalized so often that they had to make it inaccessible. So it's still there, but you can't get in it. Interesting. Which bums me out because I want to go in it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's how most haunted sites kind of end up falling is is they get vandalized over time. But, oh man. Yeah. And then, finally, people have claimed to have spoken to Mercy through Ouija boards or seances conducted at the grave or in and around the crypt. I probably wouldn't go that far because no. That's a bold choice. I'd rather not open a portal to the, I don't know. Ouija world. 
Ouija, Ouija the world. Ouija world. The Ouija world. <laughs> I don't, is that a thing? The afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> afterlife. The demon portal. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But yeah, so that's pretty much Mercy Brown. Um, wow. I, I like, there's a lot of information I didn't know there, and I didn't realize she was as popular as she is. She is so specifically around Rhode Island, because she's like the Rhode Island vampire. Makes sense. Um, so... And then I do have one fun fact that I wanted to share. Nice. I love fun facts. So Mercy Lena Brown, her story may have uh, been the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Very cool. Even, like I said, even more popular than I realized. Even Very more cool. So upon Bram Stoker's passing, news articles about, his, about the supposed vampirism of New England were found with his belongings. I did find a quote from the SmithsonianMag.com. And it is as follows. One 1896 New York World clipping found its way into the papers of a London stage manager and aspiring novelist named Bram Stoker, whose theater company was touring in the United States that same year. His gothic masterpiece, Dracula, was published in 1897. Some scholars have said that there wasn't enough time for the news accounts to have influenced the Dracula manuscript, yet others see Lena in the character of Lucy, her very name attempting amalgam of Lena and Mercy, because again, Mercy went by Lena. A consumptive-seeming teenage girl turned vampire who is exhumed in one of the novel's most memorable scenes. Fascinatingly, a medical examiner presides over Lucy's disinternment just as one oversaw Lena's. Which was, like, notable at the time. That it there was. was actually, like, a medical professional. So I'm going to say that Bram Stoker used... Mercy story to write Dracula. I think so. And I think there was plenty of time. Yeah. Jack Kerouac wrote a novel in like two weeks. So. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, he was already like a, a playwright and like stage manager. Like, the yeah, thing. it wasn't like he was like somebody who had no experience with writing who just and decided. Was just like, he hey, was I'm going to write, write this book. vampire book. I like, think that's super cool. Yeah. So I'm calling that a fact. It's a fact. All right. I'll take it. It's I've fact. had a lot of not facts this episode. So that one I think can be a fact. I'll take <laughs> it. If anything, we have learned that. Bram Stoker used Mercy as vampire. Facts. You can still visit some of the sites that we talked about. If you're interested, they are found across Rhode Island for the most part. So the Staples family is in Rhode Island Historical Cemetery number 17 in Cumberland. I did punch all these into my GPS, and if you type in the cemetery number, like you'll you'll get there. Cool. <laughs> the Tillinghast family plot is in Rhode Island Historical Cemetery number 14 in Exeter. The Young Family plot is in Rhode Island Historical Cemetery number 142 in Foster, but this one's on private property, so I would maybe not try to go there without permission. Also, can we talk about how there's at least 142 historical cemeteries in Rhode Island? That's a lot. Right? Those are just historical. That's nuts. JB, I wasn't able to find where his body was. I don't think that it's anywhere that can be visited. Well, his was like a family grave, too. That's probably like on someone's private property at this point. Yeah, I'm assuming. Mercy, Brown, and family can be found at the Chestnut Hill Cemetery in Exeter. I think that one also has a historical cemetery number, but it's mostly referred to as Chestnut Hill. The exact locations and directions can be found on rihistoricalcemeteries.org, which is where I found all of this information. And that is the story of... New England vampires, specifically Rhode Island. I like it. I dig it. Um, just another thing, if you go visit these sites, obviously you don't want to be like those vandals who make it so we can't see all the cool historical stuff anymore. So 
There's some quote about memories and footprints. Remember to take only memories and leave only footprints. Yes. So if you're going to check out these awesome sites, which for historical value are probably worth checking out, just be respectful. Obviously, these are people's lives, people's histories. This is beloved history to the state and property that does not belong to us. So be good. Be good. (laughs) Be kind. Be kind to others and the dead. We hope that you enjoyed today's look at New England vampirism. Tune in next week for a tale of the house on Round Top Road. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Myth and Macabre. If you have any stories that you would like to hear us cover, send us an email at mythandmacabre at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.